Welcome, friends. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Today is the 31st of March, 2014, here in Japan, and today we're joined on the line by James and Joanne Moriarty of LibyaWarTheTruth.com. I'm sure that a lot of you will already be familiar with their story from the various interviews that they've given in the alternative media, but for those who aren't, I hope you will go to LibyanWarTheTruth.com, which of course will be linked up in the show notes for this interview to find out more about their fascinating story as business people who were doing business in Libya since 2000. And were there as eyewitnesses during the carnage of the NATO, the NATO sponsored and Al Qaeda, Al Qaeda perpetrated invasion and overthrow of the Libyan government there in 2011. And of course, they are continuing to keep track of what's happening in that country, even as the jingoistic war propagandists of the corporate mouthpiece media have completely abandoned that country and its people in the wake of that invasion. So, uh, James and Joanne, thank you very much for joining us on the program today. It's great to have you here. James, thank you for, so much for inviting us. We're proud to be here yeah. and tell our story. Thank you so much, James. Excellent. Well, let's start getting into that story. As I say, you ha- were there in Libya since 2007 doing business in the country. Tell us a little bit about what business you were doing there and your impressions of the country back in, in that stage. We have a proprietary product and technology that rejuvenates oil wells and cleans up pipelines and sludge pits and chicken fat and PCBs. We do a medical-grade DNA manipulation of microbes, and we produce an enzyme, or enzymes, rather, that do lots of neat things to oil. And uh, we were looking for a new market. We had done lots and lots of business internationally, mostly in the in the BRIC countries. And we were um, had a nice contract pending in Kuwait to clean up the norm in that country, and, and we thought we would stop off in Libya to see what opportunities were there because, as you know, they've been blocked for about 38 years from from contemporary technology. And we had actually planned to go there for five days. We were the first non-government-sponsored corporation to go into Libya, and we arrived on January 1, 2007. Our five-day trip was extended at the request of the local governments, and and every night we met a different uh, minister from the, the Libyan government, they were like a sponge soaking up information. They were very interested in our products and our technology. We actually walked out of there 10 days later with a, a contract to treat 2,500 wells. That was about a billion dollars worth of our product because their wells there are monster, 1,200-foot-thick production zones. Where in Texas, where we're from, a, a zone is considered prolific if it's 15 feet. So uh, with that, we were proactive to, to do whatever is necessary to fulfill those contracts in Libya. For the next couple of years, we were looking for a, a Libyan partner and registering our company according to the Libyan laws. Didn't really find a partner exactly like we wanted because there's such a difference. There's such a chasm in the, in the, the cultures of, of the United States in Libya. And so we decided to build a production plant in the Houston Ship Channel area. Hurricane Ike came along, blew that out to sea, and, of course, we were underinsured. So Joanne said, we're supposed to build in Libya. Let's go back there. And uh, um, from 2007 until January 2011, we had been to Libya 17 times. We were never there less than 30 days at a time, most of the time um, two or three months at a time. In in first week of January 2011, we signed a joint venture agreement with the Social Security Investment Fund of John Zur, which is a real nice resort area west of Tripoli, 
all the pensioners or beneficiaries of that fund were uh, ex or retired oil field service workers and, and executives of oil companies. So it made the perfect partnership for us. We do the magic in our production plant. We let all the local politicians and, and everybody work together with their within their own system. And um, I actually uh, ordered in all the materials to build a, a large-scale enzyme production plant and feedstock materials. Uh, we ordered those in. They arrived in Libya sometime in March. All that disappeared. All our bank accounts, of course, disappeared. So Libya was, uh, it cost us dearly for the overthrow of that country. But the thing I want you to know that was so atypical of what we knew going in there, um, I gave Joanne a bushel basket full of headscarves to cover herself up when we were there. Found out we didn't need those at all. It was not a radical country by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, they did not like uh, men with full beards and mustaches, they didn't trust them. They did not like the part of the Quran that was added by the Ayatollah Khomeini and would not allow that to be uh, preached or taught in that country. And for that reason, Gaddafi was had a 20-year fatwa to kill him because the radical Islamists considered him not a Muslim. Uh, but we found the country very, very open. We were allowed to go any place we wanted. We were not followed. We were not trailed. We were not uh, uh, beleaguered about anything. And uh, uh, I think probably the reason for that was we were not government-sponsored. We were a private company, and they're trying to do business, legitimate business. And, yes, Libya did have a huge political problem, but that political problem did not stem from Tripoli. It stemmed from Misrata, and the Turkish mafia that ran Misrata, controlled all the shipping and ingress and egress into Libya, were really a mafia-type organization. And uh, they received 60% of all the government contracts without bid or tender because they were the mafia. And uh, the rest of the legitimate companies had to bid or tender for the other 40%. And they were a, a controlling uh, force. Uh, they're, they're the man that they installed as, as uh, the leader of the country after Gaddafi was required to step down in 2006, according to the treaty conditions, was Baghdadi. And uh, they continued to rape and pillage the country uh, for billions and billions and billions of dollars. And that was the political problem in Libya, not the, not the Gaddafi time and not the government. So, you know, it was really a different, much different country than what we had all heard. Now, the things that are different about Libya that we discovered was first, whenever a new couple got married, the government gave them a gift of $46,000. Their first house cost them 10% of their salary for 20 years, and then it was theirs. All utilities in Libya were paid by the government. That was water, gas, uh, electricity, etc. Their uh, gasoline cost them 44 cents a gallon. Their first car cost them half of dealer invoice. Uh, hospitalization was paid, and if they couldn't get the hospitalization they needed in Libya, they were uh, the government paid for it outside of Libya, plus paid travel expenses for the patient and a family member to travel with them. Their education was paid to whatever extent their brain would support. We knew a young man getting his doctorate in England. He had a wife and four kids. His monthly stipend on top of all university costs was 4,950 pounds. That's about $7,500 a month to live on while he was studying. So, um, you know, we saw two or three policemen in all of Tripoli, and they were not armed. Very, very peaceful country. Uh, we took a security detail in with us. 
one for each corner when we went any place. After two days, I sent them home. We didn't need any security in Libya. We walked the streets freely. And um, we are eyewitnesses to these things. These, this isn't something some propagandist told us. We saw these with our own eyes, and we're very alert international people. So, uh, you know, the thing that we discovered was Libya was a very friendly country. When they saw us, they recognized we were Americans. They said, oh, you're Americans. We're so happy you're in Libya. Can we help you? Do, do you like our country? I can promise you as, as U.S. citizens that we haven't seen those, that kind of interest in us in 30 years. And the women were, were a, a uh, very, very liberated group. And Joanne will tell you about the, their life. The, the interesting thing about Libya was it was the most progressive Muslim country in the world. Gaddafi did not even like the headscarves. And he emancipated women in the 1970s. You saw women in government. You saw them as doctors, as teachers, as uh, they were in the military. They did anything they wanted in that country. It was really an open country. And one of the reasons Libya was such a strong internal country, not only because of the tribal system, but because of women. The women there are very strong. They, they are allowed to speak their mind. They're allowed to, to live their lives like they choose to live their lives. Um, they, they have some restrictions on, they don't like women walking around in short shorts and stuff like that. But then there's a lot of people here that don't like that too. So women, for the most part, we're so happy there. We knew when we were there during the war, the NATO war against Libya, we worked with a great deal of women. Uh, some of them, one of them, a top attorney. And she was putting together a file of atrocities that were committed by the mercenaries that were brought in there, the 250,000 mercenaries that were brought in there. And so we're, we were real impressed with the women in Libya. We, we thought, uh, I mean, we were surprised because that's not what we'd seen in other uh, countries. Libya was the number one country in Africa. It was the fifth largest, pardon me, seventh largest by footprint in Africa, 17th largest country in the world. But uh, the uh, average salary in Libya at that time was $15,800 a year. That was the highest in Africa, higher than India, higher than China, uh, higher than Japan, pardon me, not Japan, but China and India. If you were a university graduate, you could not get a job. Then you were, were paid $15,200 a year until you could get a job. Um, high, very high literacy rate, higher than 90% literacy in men and about 87% literacy among women. They were number one in the world for inoculation of infants. They were number four in the world, according to the World Health Organization, for prenatal care and postnatal care. And now, when you saw no... Are, are almost no uh, uh, abnormalities at birth in Libya. Now 25% of all the babies born in Libya are so deformed they don't live the first 24 hours. Thank you very much. Depleted uranium bombing of that entire country. Um, Joanne and I were asked in um, May if we would go into Tripoli to head an NGO fact-finding commission. We agreed to do that. We went to Tripoli. We were there for 100 days. After the first few weeks there, we were trapped and could not get out of Tripoli. In the end, we were captured by al-Qaeda. We'd been put on their kill list because we had had the audacity to tell the Libyan people that they had the right to determine their own government. We were taken to the al-Qaeda torture center, which was the Mahari Hotel. We were there a long time. Um, in the end, a big, fat, tall, bald-headed, bearded imam came in, looked down his nose at us, and told us we would be killed and chopped up and burned and blamed on Gaddafi. 
Now, Joanne and I do not speak any Arabic at all. We did not hear that. We didn't understand what he said. But uh, three miracles extracted us from that from that uh, kill zone, which was set up two blocks away from the whole hotel, and then our escape from Tripoli, and then ultimately our escape out of out of Benghazi. Those were orchestrated by miracles. That's all anyone could say. When we got back to the United States, uh, we liquidated most of our assets to to pay severance to our scientists and engineers that had been faithful and worked for us for so many years and uh, started our sojourn, if you would, to, to rekindle our business, start everything over again. And we didn't find out until more than two years later that we had been blacklisted targeted. and targeted by the U.S. government and soft-killed. And they had successfully destroyed us financially. They had isolated us from all our family and friends. And they had threatened anyone that tried to work with us with uh, audits or worse. So we are absolutely uh, targets of this government because of the atrocities we saw and documented in Libya. And that continues to this day. We, we didn't have any idea, James, that, that we were being targeted. We Foolish that we were. Uh, we became very close with the tribes while we were there during the summer of 2011. We went to all the tribal meetings and we were promoting the tribes as the uh, shadow government, which they were, of Libya because they had burned the Libyan government so bad in the Western media that there was not a chance for that government. But the tribes of Libya, every person in Libya is a member of a tribe except maybe about 2%. And they were they had the ability to write a constitution for Libya, and they were very strong together during that summer, and they knew us very well. So when we got home, they asked us if we would continue to put out the correct information about Libya. There were two, there are two million Libyans in exile now, because if they go back, Al Qaeda will kill them. Al Qaeda runs that country now. The, the people that are there live in fear every day. There's a million homeless inside the country too. That was never true for the past Libya. So we had maybe 200 gigabytes of videos and, and photographs of what happened during that time that with NATO. We had many, many personal interviews of people with their personal stories. This is why the government began to attack us, because they didn't want that put out, I am sure. They didn't tell us that exactly, but they, we tried to tell them. Uh, For more than more than two years, we contacted every politician in Washington D.C., Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, anybody that we could talk to that held any kind of position in security and homeland security and terrorism and uh, safety, etc. No one in Washington D.C. would talk to us. We would get through their gatekeepers. Joanne was diligent, six or eight hours every day trying to find someone so we could tell this government how wrong-footed we were in Libya, how we were supporting al-Qaeda, Muslim Brotherhood, Ansar al-Sharia. We knew about Benghazi happening six or eight weeks before it happened. Couldn't tell anybody. We didn't know specifically that Chris Stevens was going to be killed, but we knew that there would be attacks on all the U.S. properties in Libya. We told on people that they wouldn't listen. Nobody listened. No one listened. And so after 9-11 happened, then Dr. Jerome Corsi of WorldNet Daily began writing articles based on information we provided him. And he's written now about 30, 30 articles based on our information. We also have had three of the documents that the tribes have delivered to us have been read into the congressional record in Washington, D.C. So they're now part of the permanent documentation of what happened in Libya. And um, We are the official spokespersons yeah. for the tribes of Libya. They appointed us that because we said we have no 
we're talking to Washington D.C., but nobody knows who we are. We not they don't know who we're speaking for. We had no personality. We had no personality, him. so they appointed us officially as their spokesperson, so that we could have people listen to us. Still didn't help. <laughs> and then beginning in April of 2013, maybe it was March. The intelligence agency started coming to us. Introduced to us by Tara Dahl. Yeah, because they had lost control of Al-Qaeda in Libya. The, the mad dog was now biting the hand that was feeding it. And uh, they began to come to our home at our invitation. We had four different agencies there. They took information. They asked us questions. They tried to have us prove that we really had deep contacts in Libya. We proved everything immediately. They were shocked. They said, how can two people in the Woodlands, Texas, get information about anywhere in Libya anytime they, they want it and we can't get anything? And instead of, instead of supporting us, because by that time we had sold everything we owned, couldn't figure out why we couldn't get a job, couldn't even get an interview. And um, all this time they had been soft killing us. They told us that the information we provided them was going up to the top of this government in the United States and it was being blocked. In the end, the fourth agency that to, to come into our home was the CIA, and this woman's name is Nikki Barakal. And incidentally, in our, on our DVD that we hope uh, many of your listeners would buy because that's the only way we exist, we tell the names and details of everybody that was in our home at our invitation. Nikki Barakal came in with Glenn Beck's organization, The Blaze, and they were going to do a two-hour documentary on us. They were to bring their film crews. They wanted everything we had. There was no money in it for us, but it would give us notoriety that hopefully would help protect us, you know. The organization told us that we were under more, in more danger from the U.S. government than we were ever when we were in the hands of al-Qaeda. And after two days, they were to start filming, and instead of filming... Nikki Barakal called us and she said she had killed that uh, project because we'd been talking to the intelligence agencies and we need to continue to do that. And I said, we've been talking to the intelligence agencies. They're doing nothing about it. There's not any, any reason for the Libyans to risk their lives to get this information for you guys if you're doing nothing with it. She said, well, you need to forget about Libya and start your life over today or you won't have a life. And I said, that sounds like a threat. She said in a very loud voice, you stand down, do exactly what I'm telling you, or you will not have a life. So at that time, Joanne spoke after we hung up with her and said, we've got to start going public. She, she told us we were targeted. She said, you were tagged at the airport when you came in from Libya. And that's probably true because Jimmy was taken at the passport control for three hours, interrogated by the FBI, went through his bags, went through everything. I took was the not, linings out of my bag. Luckily, I had the information on me. They didn't bother me. Neither did the extremist Muslims. They didn't like to touch women except to rape them or cut their heads off. So they didn't bother me either. I'm the one who was carrying the information. And uh, when she threatened us, we began to go on the air. We, we started going on radio programs. We, we've traveled from Houston to Northern California and back, conducting seminars, telling our story, telling the truth. Uh, in early December, we met with Congressman Pete Sessions, who is chairman of the Rules Committee for Congress. He's about the fifth most powerful man in Washington, D.C. After a lot of effort by a, a young lady named uh, Regina Ambergia, we cornered him. We had an hour and a half meeting with Pete Sessions. He took all our information and said he was going to go to Washington, D.C. He also spoke to the... He was going to go to Washington, D.C. And, and call on the carpet the heads of all the intelligence agencies to verify what we'd said. He did that. 
he called us back later and he said, I talked to the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is the top rung of the ladder for the intelligence agencies in the United States. And he said that he validated everything we said about us being blacklisted, soft killed, that they had ruined us financially, isolated us, everything. He said all that was verified completely. Plus, he said the man said that that all the information, every piece of intelligence we had provided him was 100% accurate. And Pete Sessions asked the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, why didn't you make these two people your best friends instead of attacking them? He had no answer. Well, you tell a remarkable story, and so let's back up a little. There's so much information to go over, and perhaps we'll have to spread this out over multiple interviews because I really do want to get into some of these details. But you paint a very vivid picture of the way that the the country was in the uh, the run up to this uh, this uh, invasion, this this outside sponsored invasion, and I think it's important for people to reflect on the fact that, of course, Libya, although a highly tribalized society, as you as you state, had cohered under the uh, the the government of Colonel Gaddafi for for decades, and of course, we're expected to believe that this all started to fall apart in with some protests in Zawiya in two thousand nine, and then of course in Benghazi in in February of two thousand eleven. Of course, that's the official narrative of what actually happened but can you paint for us the picture of of from your understanding of what really led to this happening in february of 2011 what was it that that really sparked this and why did it take place uh, then and there okay uh snipers from Qatar were imported along with a couple of hundred thousand mercenaries by the united states cia and cia they were, they were trained. They were brought into Libya. They were beginning to come into Libya in January and February when I was there. I was there from 1st of January, 2011, till the 8th of February. And during that time, these bearded, hard guys were coming into Libya. The borders were open for Muslims and Arabs into Libya. And the Libyans were talking freely to me about it. They said, there are these hard guys coming into the country. We don't understand what's going on. Now, by then, Tunisia had already erupted. Egypt had already erupted. But, the but they didn't have a fear. Was Libya. Yeah, the they didn't have a fear because everybody in Libya was happy. We were there supposedly during this uprising in Janzur in in two thousand and nine. Didn't happen. It was never there. There was always this small piece, two or three or four, maybe five percent radical Islamists that were Libyans, and they were always causing a stir. But you know, they were they were radicals. They were crazy. They were psychopaths. A lot of them had been in Guantanamo. There were 1,200 and something that finally had to be put in jail in Libya in the, in the 80s or 90s. It was 97, I think. And those guys that. disappeared. But these are psychopathic murderers, head choppers, rapers, you know, absolutely the dregs of the world. The reason, the reason Libya was targeted, the main reason was the African bank. Gaddafi had started a gold-backed currency for the continent of Africa. The head of it was in the Comor Islands. The, the paper bankers over here could not have tolerated uh, a continental uh, currency, gold-backed. It would have destroyed them. And that's the truth. Now, you know, the, the all the window dressing that was produced and where the people were having uprising didn't happen. There were so few Libyans that were unhappy that the, the United States brought in 250,000 paid mercenaries. And, and the telling tale should be that the first week of this revolution, they opened up a central bank in Benghazi and a billion dollars was deposited there that came from Saudi Arabia and dispersed out to these mercenaries to pay them to do their murderous deeds. 2,500 2, dinar to join, 2,500 dinar a month, 
to continue to fight and a thousand uh, dinar premium for every uh, Libyan soldier they killed. But when this started in Benghazi, Qatar, who was one of the, the attack dogs for the United States, Qatar came in with snipers Qatar. and they were uh, killing the protesters. So in effect, they were killing their own people. Why did they do this? The Same thing happened in the, in the Ukraine. Same thing happened in Venezuela. In fact, in Venezuela, they, they have ballistic proof that the same sniper killed people on both sides of that uh, activity. So this is the false flag operation. This is ca now called the Libyan model, where you go in and you falsify an uprising, and then you establish a, a uh, protect the innocents uh, agenda, uh, no-fly zone, and blow the country apart, and then you put in your own government. The, the, the reasons why Libya was such a prime target is, first of all, they had $241 billion in uh, cash and cash equivalents in the Federal Reserve. They had $150 billion in euros. They had $39 billion in cash in the country. They had 179 tons of gold, 2,000 tons of silver, many tons of other kinds of rare earths and precious metals and heavy earths. All that disappeared. So Libya was blown up effectively with its own money. And the deal about the African bank is a huge deal because the toilet paper bankers are printing toilet paper and they're trading their toilet paper for our hard assets and they're doing it worldwide. The second thing was uh, Gaddafi in 2006 was required to step down from power. That was part of the treaty agreement that he signed with Condoleezza Rice in 2006. Half of their military had to be uh, eliminated. All of their offensive weapons had to be eliminated, including their nuclear enrichment. All that was done. Another treaty was signed in 2009 where another half of the military was eliminated and half of their defensive weapons were eliminated. And the only condition Libya put on that second treaty was the United States would defend Libya in the event of an attack. That was John McCain. John McCain was in there for that one. Little did they know that the United States was going to be the aggressor. So um, while Gaddafi was retired from government, he was a big African Union guy, and he uh, took it upon himself to research all the broken treaties that had been committed by the Europeans and others on the African Union members. And he took all the, the damages that Libya had suffered because of the false uh, accusation about Lockerbie and, the, and all those other things and their embargo for all those years, and he had, he had uh, brought forward a class action, if you would, lawsuit for the African Union against all the imperialist countries for their broken treaties and damages to the African Union members. That lawsuit was about $7 trillion. He had presented it to international court. It had legs, according to the attorneys. That brought France, England, Italy, Turkey, Germany, and all the other countries on board to get rid of Gaddafi. So we've got the, we've got the, the African bank, and that made the U.S. ready to kill him and put him out of business. The the action against the European Union, that, that brought all the Europeans against him. The third thing was uh, Lockerbie and all those atrocities were proven to have been false. And Susan Lindauer, who worked for the CIA, has suffered imprisonment over that, and she's written a book about that. So uh, by bringing this lawsuit in, in uh, world court, that brought the United States against him. Also, Gaddafi refused, along with, six other, with five other countries, never to join AFRICOM. 
And the United States is bound and determined to have a war with China one day, and they want to keep China away from the natural resources of Africa and South America. So AFRICOM had to be whole, had to be completely controlled by the U.S. military. Gaddafi, South Africa, and four other countries said not ever. So the United States wanted to get rid of him to install AFRICOM as a 100% unit. Really, Libya was leading Africa into the 21st century, and that was Gaddafi's dream. You know, what, people don't realize this, but when, when the old despot king who was put in there by the, by the uh, British and, and I think the United States, by the oil companies really, in the late, in the 60s after World War II, the average salary for any Libyan was 60 dinar a year. That's about $50 a year. The Libyans never owned any land. They were just the workers on the land for the Italians or for any other country that occupied their land. When they had their bloodless coup and the old despot king ran off, and they, they, the tribes appointed Gaddafi to be the leader, the, the Libyan people were all given the land by Gaddafi that they were working. The first time in the history of Libya, the Libyan people got to own their own land. So the Libyan people, I never met Gaddafi, but I met him through the hearts and minds of the people that we met. We met thousands of people. And there were people who were disgruntled, of course, there always is, but there were so many people that loved Gaddafi, admired him knew that he brought their country into the 21st century. They had good lives. They had nice homes. They had good roads. They could fly around the world. They could do whatever they wanted to do. And they had a right to choose their government. And if they love their leader, who who is NATO to come in for 4% of the people in Libya, the radical Islamists, and blow up the country over that? You know, it was just a, it was a crime. It's, it's a war crime that will, is not matched. Now, when we, when we first went into Libya on the fact-finding commission and we produced a lot of articles and everything beginning in february and march of 2011 trying to tell the truth about what was going on and uh, of course our business was a consideration we had everything we had ever owned invested in that in that new operation there so we first of all went to libya for our business after we were there and we saw the atrocities with our own eyes and believe me, we have supported the U.S. and our military forever. We've, we've donated air conditioners and boots and blankets to our, our troops many, many, many times. Containers full of air conditioners, etc. But uh, when we got there and we saw these atrocities, and you know, you can't blow up hospitals and schools and power plants and water treatment plants, and you can't embargo gasoline, which was the fuel of the people, not the military. The military were all diesel-powered vehicles. So these atrocities were being committed they on the people. Leaflets, they blew up yeah. homes. These are illegal acts of war. You cannot do those things. We were in a hospital where they were bombing the hospital. Uh, they bombed a little uh, van of 12 people. They were bombing apartment buildings. And I can promise you the weapons that the United States owns today, there is no excuse for them not hitting the target. They're so sophisticated they can drop a bomb on the license plate of a car. So how could they miss a, a target miles away? The other thing, they bombed every night. They bombed beginning at 1 o'clock in the morning and bombed till 6 every night in areas where there was no fighting at all. They did this to disrupt the people. The incidence of, of high blood pressure and diabetes and uh, nervous disorders is up 300%. Miscarriages are up three or 400%. Malformed babies from depleted uranium. Libya looks like a hot spot now from all the cluster depleted uranium cluster bombs and fuel air explosives. That's a poor man's nuclear device. Those were used on Libya. 60,000 sorties. 
that's more bombing raids than entire World War II combined, were committed on a population of 6 million people, and more than half a million Libyan people have been killed. We're talking about innocents, men, women, and children. <laughs> Genocide of blacks, about 30 to 35 percent of all the population of Libya was black. It was a colorblind country. You saw in every family, black, brown, beige, everything white, in between, and white. Too. And white. And so the blacks were first-class citizens in Libya. They held Libyan passports. The news said, oh, these are mercenaries that Gaddafi's brought in from Africa. Not true. They were Libyan citizens. <laughs> Yet probably of the, of the 500 or maybe even 600,000 people that were killed, about 200,000 of them are black. And there are 128 mass graves in Libya today full of black bodies that nobody has counted, nobody's documented them, nobody wants to know about it. They've raised it. three towns, or five towns, that were all uh, mostly black. They've raised those, and the uh, Al-Qaeda has taken over those towns. The militias that roam all over all over Libya now, they have no, no security, no police. They just take whatever they want. So they have raised five towns that were uh, African- uh, were black people. It's it's horrible. The horrible. blacks were, were very productive agricultural entities. They produced chickens and, and food and everything in, dairy. in uh, dairy. dairy products, yes. Very, very productive. In fact, most very of successful. Libya uh, were, were receiving their, their uh, homegrown foods from the, the black tribes in Libya. And the first week of this phony revolution had al-Qaeda standing up on, on international news saying they were going to eliminate these black mercenaries. They were going to cleanse, cleanse Libya of the blacks. These are the, the people that John McCain went over and put his arms around and said, these are my heroes. He, any, anytime you see him hugging somebody, it's al-Qaeda or Ansar al-Sharia Muslim Brotherhood. Well, well speaking exactly on that topic, I, I mean, the scale and scope of what went on in Libya is still something that's just mind-boggling and very difficult for us to wrap our heads around. But it is, of course, documentable to those very shadowy Al-Qaeda figures that you're talking about, and, um, perhaps most notably among them, people like Abdul Hakim Belhaj. Perhaps you can tell us the story of, of people like that and how they came to uh, to not only get renditioned and supposedly tortured by the, the, the intelligence agencies, but then magic become the, those intelligence agencies' best assets in the country. Yeah, exactly. Bel Hodge, you know, was at Guantanamo. Bel Hodge is, is a well-spoken guy, and he was picked by the CIA to be the head of security for the rebels. So he was flown in there along with uh, a number of other people that worked for the CIA, like McGreef, who was put in as the first president. He was CIA for 30 years. He stole $80 million from Libya, ran off and, and to the United States, took the $80 million and started an anti-Gaddafi league so they couldn't ask for the money back. But Belhaj himself uh, was arrested a number of times, ended up in Guantanamo. He is a terrorist. He's done terrorist acts in Yemen, in Afghanistan. And after he was the head of security in Libya, when, when they, NATO came in and blew up Tripoli and absolutely just ran over the country and the people had to leave to survive, he took over Tripoli. He now is the head of security for Tripoli, which means there's no security. He runs the Maitiga Airport. Maitiga is the airport of the old U.S. military. Um, it's a place where he has a private prison where he tortures people. He brings in weapons from Qatar all the Every time. Every night. Every night. And we gave this information to the... To the uh, CIA to the FBI to the DIA. We gave it to them 
they looked at us cross-eyed like, well, how would you know that? I said, well, you can surely see the planes come in. You have satellites. But uh, Belhaj is a, is a mess. He, he is not a person you want in charge of anything. Terrible. Also, the Al-Qaeda, what's the name of the guy that owns the passport office now? Gaib. Gaib, terrible. His brother was Al-Libi, the number two or three man in Al-Qaeda, terrible terrorist. Gaib is, is as bad. And beginning in October of 2011, he owned the passport office in Libya. He was border security, but he, he brings in terrorists from all over the world. They bring them to Libya. If they can speak good English, they get a new Libyan name, a new Libyan passport. They receive immediately a bank account in the United States with 4 to $5 million, a permanent greed card or a multiple entry visa. And several hundred of those have been coming in the United States since October of 2011. Yeah. And also, a thirty a box, a group of 30,000 were transported from Syria. These same bad guys, when it was going against uh, CIA in Syria, they boxed up 30,000 of their worst, flew them to the United States. The pilots had to sign a 29-page non-disclosure document. They arrived in the United States. When they landed, they were immediately given U.S. credentials and money and put on the streets in the U.S., so, you know, my, my question and my fear, not only for the United States, but the rest of the world, is why in the world is this happening? What good can this possibly do to anybody? Well, it can't do any good. And when I told these fears to the intelligence agencies, I said, I'm most concerned about this because the United States is being infiltrated by these murderous, psychopathic the killers. They talked about And they it. said, what should we do about that? And I said, I'll be pretty damn easy to look at every Libyan that's come in the United States since October of 2011, if they've got a bank account with four to five million dollars in it, then waterboard the bastard until you find out who he works for. Now, oh, we couldn't do that. That's profiling. But you know, we're credible witnesses. We were there. We saw these things. We continue to have conversations every day with people from Libya, and they're giving us this information, and it's not wanted to be known here. Well, we were told. We were told by by one of the agents that we spoke to that the Muslim Brotherhood is setting policy for this country, and he was pretty disgusted about it. But there is a man uh, named Sufi Ngamo. Sufi Ngamo is the one of the leaders of the attack on Benghazi. He's an Ansar al-Sharia leader. He was the driver for uh, bin Laden for many years. Now, he's in Darna in the east. Darna is what they call, they have named it an Islamic emirate. They're trying to make it completely uh, Independent. Sharia law. Yeah. yeah. But the people are rising up against him. And But he is a bad guy. The U.S. government knows it. It's in their report. His name is in there. His head has been offered many times by the Libyans. His his location is offered, his head is offered, his drivers are offered. Nobody takes it up takes them up on it. There's a ten million dollar reward being offered by the State Department of the United States for information leading to the capture or whatever of the leaders of the of the Benghazi attacks. Now, we have all that detail. We have the three men that coordinated the attack. We have their name, addresses, and phone numbers, and we've got their family members who will testify to what they heard because they're ashamed of them. We have the name, address, and phone number of the head of Ansar al-Sharia that committed those acts. We've been trying to give that to the government of the United States. Nobody, not any congressman, not any politician. Let's talk about Louis Gohmert or 
or Issa or Michelle Bachman or any man, any politician you see that's talking about how they want to bring the truth forward on Benghazi and Libya, don't don't believe it because we've been trying to give it to them, even though there's a $10 million reward. Uh, James, an interesting thing happened during this time when we were meeting with the with the uh, intelligence agencies. Our Libyans called us one night and they said, this is top urgent. And this, they said, this has nothing to do with Libya, but it has to do with people. And we're, we don't want to see any more people killed. Their people inside, they have eyes on the ground everywhere. We're telling them there is a ship disguised as a fishing vessel on, in the Mediterranean. And it's Large steamship. It's full of, of weapons of mass destruction, and it's heading for Libya. It's going to land either near Tobruk or Darna. It will be unloaded by the Muslim head of Muslim Brotherhood in Libya. It'll be taken across Libya into Egypt, across Egypt into the Gaza Strip, where it will be used against Israel. It was sent by Zawahiri, the head of head of Al Qaeda, and I think at that time he was in Turkey. Came from Turkey. We tried to get them to take this information that night. They said it's still on the open waters. They can get it. Uh, the one agent that I, I thought might be able to do anything, well, it was Saturday, so he didn't answer his phone. The other agent answered his phone, and he said, well, I was over in that area. I know some people in the Mossad, but he said, I can't pass that information. It's illegal for me to pass intelligence to Israel or to any other country. And I said, well, I can pass it. It's my information. Give me the guy's number. So as Jimmy Joanne says, beat up, beat up on him for about 15 minutes, and he finally agreed He said, you're call. right. That, that needs to be done. So he called. And two hours later, he called us back and he said, I got a, a smiley face back from the Mossad. They got the ship. And so we called our tribal leaders and I said, uh, what's happening on the ground with the Muslim Brotherhood? He said, oh, they're all running around like chickens with their head cut off. They're, they can't find the ship. They can't. The ship doesn't answer. They're going to send a boat out to see what happened. And that actually made the news. It, it was uh, distorted, the news course. It was morphed. It was morphed. It said it was a ship headed to Syria, but it wasn't. It was headed to Libya. Anyway, nothing, that, nothing has been told about that. No. You know, the, the thing that's surprising or, or was so disgusting to us is that, that we had no idea, first of all, we were being targeted. And we were so frustrated because we were getting intelligence about our common em enemy, about al-Qaeda and Muslim Brotherhood, where all these atrocities, where their, where their training camps were, latitude and longitude, oh how many weapons they had. They and uh, there was one training center, the biggest in the world, 1,300 people there all the time. We gave them the exact location where it was. We, we mapped them on a Google map exactly where it was. Nobody knew about this training camp. Four days later... Emergency orders came down for that camp to be moved, and they left there one at a time with what they could carry in their hands. No one had talked about that camp before we did, and we gave it to the U.S. intelligence agencies, and four days later, that camp was evacuated. We've given them this, the address where these really bad guys that are on their kill list spend the night. We gave them uh, latitude and longitude of where the underground excavations were taking place, where they were storing and hiding weapons. They Nothing have, was ever done about gas. it. We knew where the sarin gas was. Chris Stevens delivered 20,000 man-pad rockets into Libya in the first week of the fighting. And, of course, the, the no-fly zone was established in two and a half days, according to the U.S. pilots that did it. They said Libya couldn't get a mosquito in the air. Yet we still delivered 20,000 of these rockets into them. And the night that Chris Stevens was killed, he was having dinner with a personal representative of the head of Turkey, and he asked him, 
to deliver, to, to use his influence to get these 20,000 man pads back because they have a real unique signature and the United States would, could be responsible for dropping 20,000 airplanes out of the sky. And he was told for all practical purposes to pound sand. How do we know that? One of our Libyan tribal leaders' spies was serving dinner to Chris Stevens and the other man that night. And uh, those 20,000 rockets, I think Chris Stevens is ultimately going to be blamed for their loss. And, of course, dead men tell no tales. Well, so, we have a witness that lived across the street, uh, an eyewitness. He speaks very good English, and he's spoken on it to us a number of times and on a couple of radio shows. And it's pretty clear to us that this the the attack was probably uh, a cover-up of an assassination. There were two cars that left the compound immediately when the firing started, left from the back of the compound at high speed, full of people. Chris Stevens was not in the, either of those cars. Now, this is not the two cars that came from the CIA uh, annex, which was about three-quarters of a mile away. This is the mansion it was never a consulate, never an official villa or anything. It was where the politicians spent the night and had their meetings when they were in Benghazi. That's where this attack took place. And it was partitioned off for five kilometers around this. It was blockaded so nobody could get in and out. It was a plan. Yet these two, cars, these two cars got out. In the first seconds of the fighting, Chris Stevens was not in that bunch. So, you know, the, there's too many lies still about Benghazi, and we have plenty of credible witnesses. One man lived right across the street. As Joanne said, he's been on radio with us a few times, very articulate, timeline perfect, and uh, no one wants to hear that truth. And that, that incidentally, that, is, that investigation on Benghazi is being blocked by John Mader, Boehner, and Pete Sessions. Two Republicans are blocking the investigation on Benghazi. You have to ask yourself why. Well, they're all the same. And, and now then the latest news out of Libya is the United States is now sending in 6,000 Marines to train Libyans. We don't and they, know if they're Marines, but they're they, military. They've delivered military into the hot spots of Al-Qaeda. They've sent it to the northeast, I mean, pardon me, northwest corner of Libya from the Regatta area all the way over to, to uh, the Tunisian border. They sent these U.S. Uh, military in there to train Libyan fighters. Now, the only people in that area, that's completely controlled by Al-Qaeda. That's where the Al-Qaeda weapons are stored. Why is the U.S. sending in training into that part of Libya? Well, what Libyans are they going to be training? You know, yeah. the question has to be asked. We don't know because that area is blocked out from the rest of Libyans. They're not allowed in there because that's owned by Al-Qaeda and the CIA. Well, the CIA is in Janzor. Uh, they have a big training camp there. The Libyans know where the CIA are and where the where the MI5 is. They they know all this. But one thing that they would That's like the, us incidentally, to say... That, that training began in the last week or 10 days. One thing that they would like us to say is that the only hope for Libya, and this is true and I believe it 100%, are the tribes. The tribes will take back their country and put peace in it. And all the tribes are together now, all of them, including the Zentan tribe, which is, is the strongest tribe as far as fighting and weapons and things like that. They have all joined together now. And they have already have a constitution written, and they're ready to take their country back, and they're working on it. So uh, al-Qaeda itself, as, as the tribal leaders tell us, they know their days are numbered in Libya, and I really hope that's true because uh, – Libya doesn't deserve this, and, and it's right across from Italy, very close to Italy. So Europe should be very concerned about this mess over there, too. 
Well, once again, you you paint a very vivid portrait of how the intelligence agencies really are working to protect their Al-Qaeda minions that are doing their, their, their dirty work in the country. And this is, again, just a fascinating picture. And there are so many different pieces of this puzzle that I'd love to put together with you guys. But unfortunately, we're running out of time for this conversation. So as I say, we'll definitely have to have you back on again in the very near future to continue this conversation. But in the meantime, I do want to give you a chance to talk about your DVD. As you say, the only kind of economic lifeline that you have at the moment um, as the soft kill continues to be perpetrated on you. Tell us about the DVD that you offer at LibyanWardTheTruth.com and uh, what's on it. It's more than three hours long. The first hour is is our full seminar, including a PowerPoint presentation. We name the names of all the intelligence agencies that came into our home. All the heads of Al-Qaeda that are in Libya. The heads of Al-Qaeda in Libya. It's It's a very detailed seminar. We have a we have a long uh, video interview view that uh, Dennis Kucinich did where he outs the Libyan war as having been planned years in advance and the war games conducted in, in 2010. There's a long video that was that was the product of our uh, NGO fact-finding commission there. It's a very detailed uh, video of, of how Libya was before, during, and after. Uh, there's uh, a lot, there's a, a section of the DVD that's real hard to watch. It shows uh, people getting murdered, getting their heads cop- chopped off and everything. That's detailed in a, in the timeline. Either we took those films ourselves or we interviewed the families of the people that were getting murdered in those horrendous uh, methods. There's a real good article about from uh, Terry Mason, who is the Voltaire uh, yeah. Network one of their top guys. We knew him in Libya and he does a great article in there that we've published. And then there's a, at the end of it, there's a song that was written by one of the most popular African uh, musicians where they uh, pay tribute to Gaddafi. He did a lot of first world activities in, in, in Africa. We didn't know the man, but you know, we got to know the Libyan people, very nice people, very, very innocent uh, and please buy our DVD. That's the only way we have to exist. And believe me, we are attacked. We've been threatened to be killed by the U.S. intelligence agencies four times. The last time was about two weeks ago because they said they're upset that we're giving out their names. Let me tell you, they came into our house and threatened to kill us. They threw the first stone. And so, uh, you know, they've taken everything away from us. They can't take anything else away. We have the truth www.libyanwarthetruth.com. Please go to our website. It's free. You'll get lots and lots of information. Buy our DVD. And most of all, keep us in your prayers. All right, James and Joanne Moriarty, absolutely a fascinating story. So as I say, we will have you back on in the near future to continue this conversation. But for right now, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. And thank you for all of the information you've been providing. James, we also have the ability to bring on some of the tribal, tribal leaders. leaders and stuff on your show. They, they'll be glad to give you current information. You know, uh, They're trying to get their country back. Uh, they need to be in everybody's prayers as well. Well, we will definitely continue to coordinate on that. So for now, I hope people will visit LibyanWareTheTruth.com and consider purchasing the DVD to help out with you guys with your efforts. So thank you once again for your time. Thank, thank you, James. We appreciate we you. We appreciate it.